for it and go for it. All right, folks. Hey, welcome uh, to you talking with uh, Greg. And here I am with Howard Bloom, one of the most fascinating characters I've ever come across. This guy's got a biography you will not believe. You probably have heard of him. He's been on Jordan Peterson, been on the Stella. Uh, brilliant, genius, multifaceted scientist that also started the 60s. Uh, so anyway, Howard, welcome. Uh, Greg, that was a wonderful introduction. Thanks very much. Absolutely. So you were telling me that, you know, in terms of one of the things that you started to look at some of my stuff, maybe it's a little jargon heavy, you were telling me about what we need to be able to do to, con you know, communicate ideas in a particular way and get to the heart of what uh, what the issues right. are. And so I think I you've done a great how job. how I got to, to my way of writing about things. Yes. And our ways of writing about things are dramatically different, very, very different. And we're probably aiming at very different audiences. Um, and you are up you are undertaking an instrumental purpose. You have gotten yourself two issues of one of the leading um, psychological journals um, for your theories. You have gotten a lot of attention and recognition um, for what you're doing. And you have evolved as a kind of meta psychologist, um, a psychologist who is a, a floor above the other psychologists looking down and putting together the whole thing. I'm trying to find the blooming universe. Yes, right. So, <laughs> so I was explaining that I got started, I was given my marching orders in how to write about science mm -hmm. when I was in eighth grade and mm -hmm. the, the, the kids normally paid zero attention to me and I didn't mm -hmm. realize that except when they wanted somebody to humiliate, in which case they'd grab my hat and throw it over my head back and forth and, you know, the usual things you do to humiliate somebody. And uh, one day uh, a girl turned her face in my direction, which had never happened before. She mm -hmm. she made eye contact, which also had never happened before. I was shocked. It was <sighs> such a different experience than anything I'd ever had. And she said, I told my mother, you understand the theory of relativity. So as soon as this is in eighth out, grade, right? <laughs> yeah, eighth grade. So as soon as I got out of school, I picked up my bike and I pedaled as fast as I could to the local library where the librarians knew me better than my mother did because my mother never paid attention to me. The librarians did. They had huh. been letting me into the adult section, which is absolutely forbidden to me huh. since I was 10 years old. No. So so these yeah. people got a little bit more of who I was than my mom did. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. At any rate, and I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they gave me a great big fat book by Einstein mm -hmm. and two collaborators and a little skinny book by Einstein himself. And I had learned at the age of 12, God knows how, that if mm -hmm. you have a choice between a difficult route and an easy path, take mm -hmm. the difficult route. You mm -hmm. will think every minute, every step that you don't understand a thing. And you will wonder why you are doing this. But by the time you get to the end, you will have understood something. Huh. And so I slogged through the big book, which is all equations, seven words of English per page. That was it. Right. And I don't understand equations. Nor do I. Uh, but, but at eight, I looked up when I hit page 50 and it was eight o'clock at night. And I realized my mom's going to put me to bed in two hours. If I don't mm. understand the theory of relativity by then, I'm sunk tomorrow. I'm going to be uh -huh. humiliated at school. <laughs> we so, got to make it. <laughs> so I turned to the little skinny book, and a uh -huh. very strange thing happened. This is the first time this ever happened to me in my life. Okay. Uh, I opened the introduction, and in mm. the introduction, Albert, it felt as if Albert Einstein had reached out through the pages of the book, grabbed me uh -huh. by the shirt like this, 
right? Put his nose up to mine and said, listen up, Schmuck, to mm. be a genius, it is not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To mm. be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. Plus, at the time, I, I had recently read One, Two, Three, Infinity by George Gamow, who was the yeah. guy who put okay. Big Bang Theory yeah. on the map. Yeah. And and his book was delicious. Mm. And it got its points across by giving you uh, a sentence of insight mm. and right. then backing it with a story. So you understood mm. what mm. that sentence of insight was designed to say mm. um, and doing that all through the book. And by doing that, Gamov had made his book a dessert tray for the intellect. He had nice. made it absolutely delicious. Mm -hmm. So what Einstein seemed to be telling me is right like George Gamov. Okay. Um, and huh. that's been my marching order ever since. So I have yeah. taken writing extremely seriously. It's been totally. as important to me as my science. And, and you know, probably, I don't know, but um, I have now been published in peer-reviewed journals or given lectures in 12 different scientific disciplines. Wow, and that's I, amazing. And I've never heard of anybody doing that before, but that's what my mentors at the age of 10 were telling me what science right. is all about, is mm -hmm. doing what you do, putting together the big picture that emerges when you fly over the face of all of the specializations and use them as pixels exactly. in a big picture. And That's... the value of big picture thinkers is enormous because it just so happens that as hard as the specialists work to actually torpedo mm -hmm. the big picture thinkers, and they do, their questions all come from big picture thinkers. And they will need the next big picture to generate the next set of questions and the next way to show the larger meaning of those little teeny weeny bits of Right. micro segmented specialization <laughs> that they are drilling down to so and what mm. uh, we have a you know there's a new thing called the howard bloom institute it's two years old now mm. right and that's a very okay. endearing story howard let me just say that i love that i love that uh, and i and thanks. i and i am i do have a psychology today blog and i am committed to learning how to write better <laughs> i'll say that that's well i suggest what i learned from gamma okay. write your point you know mm -hmm. what it is you're trying to get across understand that by the time you reach the end of that sentence nobody's going to understand what you're talking about mm -hmm. especially if you're suggesting something that isn't on the common beat that isn't part okay. of a toolkit of accepted cliches right. and then once you finish follow it with a story that illustrates mm -hmm. what you are saying a vivid story right. and then follow that with a couple of sentences on the research that shows mm -hmm. that the point you are making is indeed generalizable, mm -hmm. that it is indeed supported um, by mm -hmm. the science, then move on to your next point. Right. And then when mm -hmm. you finish writing something, go back to the beginning, reread the whole thing, and try to put everything in chronological order mm -hmm. so that the larger whole that you're writing forms mm -hmm. a story. Because sure. every time you get things out of chronological order, you're going to add to cognitive load. Mm -hmm. You're going to require the reader to piece together a jigsaw puzzle. You right. never want them to be piecing mm -hmm. together a jigsaw puzzle. You always right. want them to be traveling down a clear pathway, wondering what's around the next corner. 
Totally. Um, I remember, you, didn't you say something about the way you organized the, uh, sort of the universe chronologically that came to you? Did I hear you oh talk about Oh my God, that? yeah. So so it's another story from when I was okay. 12. <laughs> I, again, remember, I, I got into theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10. Right. And, oh. and I was being taken seriously at the age of 12. Uh, okay. My mom schlepped me off to meet with the head of the grad school of physics at the University of Buffalo. I cool. would imagine... I mean, a 12 year old, this is ridiculous. Um, I would imagine that this was a courtesy call to my mom, who was probably very good at twisting arms. And so it was supposed to be five minutes and then he could get back to the real work of his day. But no, we stepped into his office. He closed the door. We didn't come out for an hour. Why? Wow. We were discussing the major scientific um, kerfuffle of the time. The major scientific dispute was an argument between the supporters of steady state theory of the universe, uh, okay. that the universe yeah. is constantly producing new sure. hydrogen that's constantly gathering in new gas clouds and then new uh -huh. galaxies and new stars. Um, and this is a process that doesn't have a beginning and uh -huh. won't have an end. And then there was the contrary theory. Um, and it was a theory that was named by the leading proponent of steady state theory as a joke. Yeah. He regarded it as a Yes, regarded it as a disparaging term. That was Fred Hoyle, yeah, the, so, the solid state guy, trying yeah. to disappear the work of of George Gamow, mm -hmm. who was the basically the major champion of mm -hmm. Big Bang Theory. And that year, 1955, when I was sitting mm -hmm. in that office of the head mm -hmm. of the graduate physics department, um, mm -hmm. was the year that Fred Hoyle was absolutely convinced he was about to totally torpedo Big Bang Theory and that no one would ever hear of it again. Huh. Wow. <laughs> so, and I co-designed uh, my first computer when I was 12 years old, and somebody else built it who went on going to MIT, um, yeah. and it won some science fair awards. And I was doing a whole, and I was being tutored in outside the box scientific <laughs> thinking by the head. I believe that. <laughs> I, by the head of research and development for the Moog Valve Corporation, which I always uh, thought made plumbing valves. No, it made uh, the most advanced valves of the time, the valves uh, for the jet engines and rockets um, okay. that that took humans to the edge of space in the Bell X-1 and Bell X-2 wow. for the very first time. Uh, so yeah. all this was going on when I'm 12 years old. So my, And I was not doing well at school. Why? Because I didn't care what the teachers had to say. I didn't care what they put up on the blackboard. I was in. I was immersed in a book. Uh -huh. That's all I wanted to think about. Uh -huh. So my parents came to me with an offer. Okay. And they said, look, there's this gorgeous school with park-like grounds, and we will pay. It's a private school, and uh -huh. we will pay for you to go there if you make a promise. And the promise is that you will actually work in school. Wow. Well, okay. Craig, I made that promise. And especially at that age, when you're just all idealistic, um, yeah, yeah. You, you, when I make a promise, that's the rest. That's my reality for the that's rest of reality. Mm -hmm. I'm committed to that. Okay. So I did that. But they sent me off to an interview. And uh -huh. remember, I, my, if he looked at my report card or my notes from my teachers, it was disastrous. <laughs> um, and and they got they put me in a meeting with the headmaster of okay. this new school, the Park School of Buffalo, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which was founded, by the way, in part by John Dewey himself as oh, an really? exercise in his new wow. theory of progressive education in oh. 1914. 
Um, so the headmaster was this great big man. I'm a little tiny sliver of a human. I'm the size of a toothpick. Um, and um, he wore tweed, which was uh -huh. the oh, academic that's... garb of the time. Sure. And he had a pipe in his right hand, which was well, the academic garb. <laughs> right. And he hid himself in such a way that his face was in shadows. Hmm. So he was sphinx-like mm -hmm. and deliberately imposing. Mm. And I walk into the office of this monumental figure okay. and say, look, I will only come to your school on the following conditions. Uh -huh. First of all, you will teach me Russian because Russia is going mm. to be an important country okay. in the future. Gotcha. Um, right. Second, you will reverse the order of your science courses. Right now, you teach biology first, chemistry second, and physics third. For me, you will teach me physics first, so you can tell me the story of the Big Bang, you can see how committed I was at yeah. that point, um, and, and the evolution of the first elementary particles and the first atoms. And then you will teach me chemistry, so you can show me the social dance that atoms do when they get together and make chains. Yep. Um, and then you will teach me biology, so you can teach me what complex megamolecules do when they get together and socialize, uh -huh. creating life. And uh -huh. then you will teach me anthropology, so you can uh -huh. teach me the roots of human self-organization, social organization. Yeah. And then you will teach me history, so you can show me what comes of all of this once we get writing. Um, and so that was the program I laid out for him. Uh -huh. Oh, great. Uh -huh. Lord knows where this comes from. You know, often when you're talking to somebody, the conversation with that person inspires a self in you you didn't know was there to say right. a whole bunch of things you didn't yeah. know were there. So totally. God knows where huh. this came from. But it wow. was the beginning of the tale of the timeline. Yes. And the timeline would prove to be the reason I can write articles in 12 different oh. disciplines. Oh. Um, because to me, they're all part of the same big picture. They're all hey. part of the same fabric. So this came to the surface again um, when, well, first I dropped out of college, uh, Reed College, which later Steve Jobs also did, um, mm. and hitchhiked up and down the West Coast looking for the beatniks, and a bunch of people started following me, and the beatniks were gone, and uh, we became a new movement, um, and I'm sure that in the same way that it coalesced around me, it coalesced around other pe critical people at the time. And then I left the country for a year. And when I came back, the movement I had accidentally helped create uh, had a name. It was called the hippie huh. movement. Um, and, right. and after three years. He wrote a book about this, folks. It's a it's Yes, really how I accidentally started the 60s. Um, so um, when I got back to the United States, I knew that I needed. I, I had a French teacher who had taken me in during okay. this period of wandering. And, mm. and she had told me the story of uh, the myth of Sisyphus, as interpreted by Albert Camus. And yeah, sure. Sisyphus, you know, is punished by Zeus and the gods because right. God of oh, God knows what that he had done. <laughs> My God, what He's is He's got this? a goddamn rock. <laughs> um, no, I can't. This is a very important person, but I can't oh, okay. talk to him now. Um, so this is one of the um, leading global backgammon players and gamblers in the world wow. who developed fascinating. a fascination with my work 20 years ago and would come over to visit me while I was sick in bed for 15 years 
right. um, with an illness. So he's a very right. important. But at any rate, I mean, he's an he, expert. Uh, Howard, yeah. I kind of, you know, you make me, you tickle me, Howard, in all of the ways in which you are connected to the world. It's remarkable. So, so I, she had explained to me that Sisyphus is punished by the gods. And his punishment is to roll this great big spherical rock up the side of a mountain um, in the hope of getting it to the very peak by the end of the day. And Sisyphus always, no matter how painful it is, no matter how bloody it is, Sisyphus always manages to almost pull it off. He gets within inches of putting this huge rock on the top of the mountain. And then it always slips out of his fingers and rolls back down to the base of the hill. Ultimate frustration. <laughs> yes, and he has to start all over again the next day. Oh. And what my French teacher explained to me as Albert Camus' interpretation of this yep. was this punishment was not Sisyphus's punishment. It was his gift. We all need structure in our day. What we really need is not achieving the goal. What we need is taking the path to achievement of that goal. Mm. That's where our pleasures truly lie mm. and where our fulfillment truly lays. Mm. So I knew when I got back mm. from 13 months in Israel on a Marxist um, communist kibbutz, mm. trying to see whether a different form of social structure, as everybody from Sartre on up was telling me, would yeah. utterly change human nature. I've got a I've got a clue for you. It doesn't. Um, I spent a year uh, submersed, okay. immersed in one of these cultures. So gotcha. at any rate, I had nothing to do. I had no goal. And so right. I figured, OK, what's the most obvious goal for a kid my age? Um, go to school. Well, in those days, there was a critical term. You know, we can only go as far in our vision as our toolkit of cliches will carry us. And there was a cliche that had not entered the American vocabulary yet, the English language vocabulary. It's called drop out. So I had dropped out my freshman year of college in the top 10% of my class. Um, and no school wanted a kid who had done this unnameable deed. Except NYU seemed to be collecting us. Oh, really? Yeah. So of all my college applications, the one that was accepted was NYU. Just happened uh, to be conveniently uh, where I was living. Um, okay. uh -huh. And uh, so, no, it wasn't where I was living yet. But one way or the other, I was taking courses in history. I was taking courses in um, 18th or 17th century English literature. I was uh -huh. taking courses in art history. Um, uh -huh. I was uh, taking courses in biology and physics. Mm. And Greg, I couldn't keep these things straight. Mm. They were just a huge jumble. Mm -hmm. And I have a very poor memory. It's a mm. miracle that I can remember during this conversation, your name and mine. <laughs> okay, well, we're starting there then. Uh, so, right. so I don't know how this came to me, but the timeline, remember the timeline from when course, I was yes, told? Yep. Uh -huh. I took six sheets of normal notebook paper. Okay. I scotch taped them together mm. and I started a timeline. Mm -hmm. And when uh, Michelangelo's David was tossed at me and the mm -hmm. date was, who knows, sometime in the 1500s, 1510 okay. or something like that, wham, mm -hmm. that went mm -hmm. in 1510 on the timeline. Mm 
when in history course, we learned about the founding of the Dutch or of the English East India Company. Mm, okay. And that was 1600. Yeah, sure. Wham, that went on the timeline. When in poetry class, we were talking about To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvel. That was roughly 1660. That went on the timeline. When in history course, I discovered that the uh, British Royal Society, um, the first major institution for science, for secular science, was established in something like 1665. That went on the timeline. And guess what? All these things began to reveal their relationships to each other. And eventually that timeline went back further back and further back and further back and further back until it reached your starting point and mine um, okay. The start, the Big Bang, the start of the universe, 13.73 billion years ago, the last time I looked, but the, they keep changing it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I had this magic device, and all of a sudden, people thought I had a memory. Well, Greg, mm. no, I don't have a memory. I, just <laughs> I have a have timeline. A... Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and after the first semester using mm-hmm. this, um, or the first two semesters, I never used it again. Why? Because it's been in here. Right. Ever since. It's right. my primary form of organization of knowledge. And it's mm-hmm. also your primary form of organization totally. of knowledge. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. does miracles. So I started calling what I was attempting to do at God knows what point. I called it the Grand Unified Theory of Everything in the Universe, including uh, the human soul. And mm-hmm. now, again, sometimes you things come out of you and you don't know their meaning, and it may take you 30 years to figure out what the hell you meant um, by something of this sort. Well, I was in a brief relationship uh, or non-relationship with a brilliant historian named Heather Cox Richardson. You've okay. probably heard of her. Uh, that rings a bell. Her, yeah, her substack has is, is just taken off like wild. She's a brilliant writer. She's a brilliant thinker. And um, she looked at my stuff and said, uh, there's no there there. I don't see any grand unified theory there. Mm. And it forced me to try to figure out why I knew there was a grand unified theory there. And it turns out that I knew there was a grand unified theory there because of the timeline, Mm. because of the way the timeline sutures every discipline and every humanity, every art and every science together in a larger fabric. So we are at the Howard Bloom Institute. Our first major project is to establish what I call, in 2021, I came up with a field called ominology. And it's right. a discipline for the promiscuously curious. Yeah. It's for people like you that. and me who just can't keep our hands off of new knowledge. Um, and, um, and it's there so that when you hit your sophomore year of college and your dad sits you down, and he says, Greg, look, you're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film. you got to make up your mind. Which are you going to be, an art historian, a neuroscientist, or a filmmaker? Until you make up your mind, you're nothing. Mm. And ophthalmology is there so that you can say to Dad. <laughs> I want them all. Yes, I'm... I want them all. And the result is that when you and your peers are all hitting the age of 40, the women that you know will be planning elaborate divorces so they can finally find out who they really are. Mm. Um, the men you know are buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives because they have no idea of why they're here on planet Earth. When they feel they are at the end of their lives and they have no idea of why they're here, 
you'll just be coming back from the wilderness of your multiple curiosities with your first answers. And while they feel they're at the end of their lives, you will know that you are at the beginning of yours. So, Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, so that, and, and the primary tool that. in nominology, or the one that I can propose, is mm -hmm. the timeline. Now, okay. obviously, if other people follow this discipline for a couple of generations, they'll come up with tools of their own. But the timeline is primary. It's even primary to the way you write a 750-word piece for psychology today. <laughs> Amen. Amen. It contextualizes, affords concrete, places things in relation, uh, and, and, and makes the cognitive load uh, smaller. And so let's... Exactly. You know, and so it, allows, it frees you up to mm -hmm. actually think. Yeah, it frees you up for the joy of gambling over the surface gambling as in what mm -hmm. lambs do um, over over the surface of all of these buttercups of individual mm -hmm. disciplines. All right. So what I uh, so we have the timeline. Tell right. me, give me a little bit of your thoughts about entropy and the explosion or blooming nature of the universe. Would you? OK, um, there, you've heard the word shibboleth. It's something that was invented as a kind of password. Um, by the Jews uh, in Israel, um, roughly 600 BC uh, mm -hmm. or to 1000 BC, when they were fighting the Philistines, their okay. arch enemies. And it was a word that they had you say was probably the word shibboleth, mm -hmm. because if you were a Philistinian mm -hmm. pretending to be a Jew, which mm -hmm. was not hard because the two were both uh, Semitic languages, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And you tried to infiltrate the Jewish mm -hmm. lines mm -hmm. and you were asked to pronounce the word shibboleth, you couldn't do it. Huh. The pronunciation was sufficiently different in Phoenician mm -hmm. that you had learned from birth a whole uh, different way to pronounce those syllables. Huh. And so it became obvious that mm -hmm. you were a Phoenician. Now, in every group needs a shibboleth. Okay. And generally, what is the most effective form of a shibboleth? Uh, actually, um, Richard Dawkins outlined this in The Selfish Gene okay. when he was talking about memes. Um, and um, and the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland mm. had something to say about it, too. It's an impossible thing to believe. You show mm. your utter faith in the group by agreeing to believe in something that is absolutely impossible. Huh. And it 1865, in Germany, somebody, in fact, came up with an idea that was impossible to believe, and it was entropy. Mm. And it has been the shibboleth of mm. science ever since. Mm -hmm. um, if you say, I believe in entropy and closed systems and open systems, you're in. You're part of the crowd. Mm -hmm. If you say, I'm sorry, it's bullshit, you're out. <laughs> Um, as one, one of the leading early interpreters of Einstein, one of the great British scientists mm -hmm. said um, <laughs> that, that if you don't believe in entropy, you are out in greatest humiliation. Mm -hmm. I think that was Eddington, right? Sure. Uh, yes, Arthur Eddington. You got it. So the fact is this universe is, an is not anthropic. And to describe it as anti-anthropic, which is what's being done, what's been done ever since Prigogine in the mm -hmm. 1980s to call things negantropic. Mm -hmm. Well, what things are give an extraordinary cognitive load to the human mind? Taking things out of chronological order, mm. so you're forced to piece them together yourself. Uh -huh. And the other thing is double negatives. Uh -huh. 
Double negatives will tie your mind up with cognitive load every time. And what is the idea of negentropy? Um, it is a double negative. And in fact, entropy, the, the formula is obviously good for a few things in chemistry, so good for the chemists. I'm glad they have a useful tool, but it doesn't apply to the universe because let's take 350 million years into the universe's existence. Uh -huh. There had been this scalding plasma of particles right. uh -huh. and a scalding plasma heat is a reflection of movement and speed, the speed uh -huh. of particles. If they speed really fast, they're hot. If they speed very slowly, they're cold. And if you've got this big plasma soup of particles and it's at super heated temperatures, that means that the particles in that plasma are slamming into each other at super speed, like bullets hitting each other head to head, and then bouncing off and ricocheting and hitting another particle with the same kind of super speed head first ricochet. Um, and at 350 ABB after the Big Bang, um, things slow down and, and something absolutely impossible happened. I mean, there are a great many things impossible that happened up to this point, but we won't cover their story tonight. Um, and this impossibility is that these particles, relatively speaking, the size of the Empire State Building, discovered they had an inanimate longing. And little particles, relatively speaking, the size of my fist or yours, discovered they had an inanimate longing. And defying the odds completely those radically different particles, inanimate longings, matched each other perfectly. Uh, the big particles were protons. Uh, the little particles were electrons. Uh, so electrons settled in electron shells, circling yeah. the protons. Thus were born the first atoms. Uh -huh. um, um, just a little aside, Aristotle laid out the program that current science has been following for the last 2,300 years. Mm. And he said, you break things down to their smallest parts, uh -huh. what he called their elements, what we call their particles. Uh -huh. um, and you learn the laws of those elements, of those uh -huh. particles. And uh -huh. those laws will reveal everything you ever need to know. Uh -huh. Well, he was wrong. So uh -huh. we've had a reductionist, it's called a reductionist program. Yeah. And how far have we gone at breaking things down to their smallest parts? We spent, what is it, $15 billion on CERN? We've and been trying to get to the very base and then build yes. it all back up from the little yeah. parts. But then we have a problem, and it is the biggest problem in science, and it is the oh. biggest problem in nature, and it's the reason that with all of our science, we've made a great deal of progress. We have done wonderful oh. things, but our science is still three-quarters blind. Yep. Why? Because when those electrons and those protons met, you could have tried to predict their behavior by knowing the behavior of protons and the behavior of electrons. Add them together. They've gotten you anywhere. Exactly. Atoms and a whole different unique property that belongs only to the emergent whole called hydrogen mm -hmm. or helium or lithium. So we have failed in our science to pay attention to emergent properties to the properties that come from a new social aggregation, seemingly pulling a new possibility out of the future and into the present. 
That's a big point of uh, you talk. You talk yes. says, hey, we got to pay attention to this leveling up process, people. <laughs> now, if the universe were entropic, all of these gazillions of atoms that had just formed simultaneously all over the face of the cosmos would have been randomly distributed in a random gas, like the random death grass gas of heat death, which is what the universe is supposed to settle into, according to the entropists. Um, did they do that? No. First, they formed the social aggregations of dust clouds and mm. gas clouds. Then they formed the even bigger aggregations called galaxies mm -hmm. and black holes. Mm -hmm. Then they formed the smaller aggregations mm -hmm. of stars mm -hmm. that ignited under their own pressure and began pouring out the screams mm -hmm. of dying atomic nuclei mm -hmm. at their heart. Nuclei they were tearing apart. And planets and moons. Mm -hmm. Show me the entropy. There is none. This is an anti-entropic universe. This is the mm. universe whose first law, second law, is not you shall collapse in entropy and chaos. Its mm. second law is you shall constantly be stepping up on a long stairway to heaven, a long mm. stairway of complexity. Mm -hmm. And how the next stairway is there when it's totally invisible mm -hmm. and yet is rigidly there. All those atoms all over the place, all those proton and, and electron combinations, no matter where they were, exhibited the same damn properties. Mm. The property you characterized as atom, mm -hmm. the property of hydrogen, the property of helium, the property of lithium. No matter where they were, it was as if that step had been just waiting invisibly mm. for the elements of the universe mm -hmm. to get to the right place. So they could take that step up. Uh -huh. And that means that there are a hell of a lot of invisible steps of possibility ahead of us. And all of them will come from new forms of social aggregation, which lead to new forms of emergent property. Yep. Um, so that's that's, that's great. But, the, but the, the real reason that entropy is such a danger mm. is because it creates a permanent cognitive load mm. the mind, like my writing <laughs> yeah well in the minds of some of the brightest people on the planet and we know that we need those people at their best not mm. contorted in their worst form mm. mentally in order to belong to a, to a tribe does that make any sense no it makes perfect sense uh and i'll just add so one of the things that uh the tree of knowledge does as part of utah because it try it gives us a very simplistic but I think very useful taxonomy of emergent properties. And it right. says we should pay attention to aggregates, the groupings together, okay, and right. the way in which equilibrium happens. We should pay attention to complexification, that's part-whole relations, like particles to atoms to molecules. And it says we should pay attention to the complexity-building feedback loops, like the jump from matter to life, life to mind, mind to culture. That's a new right. additional kind. And so we can right. say there's dimensional emergences, integrative emergences across levels and then aggregate patterns to give us some basic taxonomy of the kind of emergent properties that we can track. Right. So we're basically saying the same thing in a different language, totally. um, but we're on the same track. Very same. Um, and so along with entry goes the idea of equilibrium. Well, guess what, Greg? Nature abhors an equilibrium. <laughs> There is never an equilibrium. All you have to do is put 
one atom into a box along with a vacuum and you've just broken the possibility for equilibrium why because mm -hmm. that electron is going to continue almost at the speed of light to be circling around that proton what mm -hmm. you just put into that box is nothing is not static it is astonishingly dynamic it is mm -hmm. moving at all times mm -hmm. um and if you put enough of them together enough of these atoms together they'll start making dust clouds galaxies and stars mm -hmm. um and that is not equilibrium show me the equilibrium at, at any point right now if you try to show me and a picture of our galaxy at rest you're showing me a false picture because first of all our galaxy is not at rest we went over uh, i'll have to tell you another little story uh, we went okay. over a i love your stories <laughs> okay so i'm i'm 16 years old um okay. i've actually been fortunate to have one friend at a mm. time for two or three years each um, growing up. Uh, and that's fortunate because my parents don't want me, other kids don't want me, nobody wants me. Mm. Um, and one of them is a, a, one of them's father was a student of Linus Pauling, the Nobel mm. Prize winner. Wow. And he was imported to Buffalo, New York to start an advanced immunology lab uh -huh. at Roswell Park Memorial Cancer Research Institute, okay. the largest cancer research institute at that point um, on planet Earth. Wow. And um, despite the fact that one day when he and my friend, uh, my friend and, and I were both rolling ourselves together as little balls and rolling uh -huh. down a hill, I had uh -huh. rolled into his father's wrist and nearly broken it. Despite oh, that fact, <laughs> his dad recruited me into a program for 19-year-olds at Roswell Park for the summer. Okay. Wow. So I rapidly, dis I had a lesson. I had one of my first lessons in immunology. Okay. Um, they put a legitimate scientist over my head, mm -hmm. a guy named Phil Fish, to make sure that I didn't break too many multi-million dollar photospectrometers. <laughs> okay. And I am really clumsy, so I okay. could easily have <laughs> broken every one in the building. Um, and Phil Fish took me into his office. And his office was a windowless, space it was about 10 feet deep um it was about eight feet wide um and it had a built-in desk that was at least six feet long okay and it had two sets of books one was three stacks of books very neatly stacked on the left the other was another stack three stacks um very neatly stacked on the right and they were all in German. And Phil said, you see those books on the left? Uh, or you see those books on the right? Those are the books I've read in order to synthesize the molecule that it will take me five years to synthesize. And you see the books on the left? Those are the books I have yet to read in order to synthesize this molecule. And I immediately, I was also studying Nietzsche, my high school have been kind enough to get me into a course for, in philosophy at the mm. University of Buffalo, and Nietzsche really grabbed me by the walls. Mm. Thus, fight well, Zarathustra. He does do that. <laughs> yeah, and I—that was when I had the vision of mm. my friend and mentor Phil Fish as a gopher, having dug a hole thirty feet deep, and all he could see around him was darkness. He could no longer even see the light, much less the landscape he was in. And I knew I wanted to be an eagle. I wanted to fly over the landscape of all of the Phil Fishes 
of the world mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. see the big picture. And I had a crisis of identity. Mm -hmm. I've been a science person since right. I was 10. That was a third of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if I was going to have to abandon the term science mm -hmm. and switch to philosophy to give me permission to take mm -hmm. this omnological mm -hmm. point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but so the work we were doing, I never quite understood, and it didn't really interest me that much. I mean, mm -hmm. injecting a noxious substance that will cause cancer into the ears of these poor, innocent bunny rabbits at the rate of mm. hundreds a day is not thrilling work that gives you a big picture of anything. I and nobody ever explained that. anything. But at lunch, I got together with the other 19-year-olds and we became mm. a discussion group. Ah. And one strange thing about being an outsider all of my life, if there is a group, I am cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. <laughs> um, but if the group forms around me, people mm. become very enthusiastic yes. about it. So this was a discussion group formed around me. And I okay. was after the solution of something called the charge, parity, and time problem, the CPT mm. problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the charge, parity, and time problem is real simple. Um, according to mathematics, um, if a positive particle pops into existence, mm -hmm. a negative particle, um, exactly its doppelganger, pops mm -hmm. into existence at the same time, mm -hmm. an anti-particle. Mm -hmm. So if there are so many positive particles in this universe, where the hell are all the anti-particles? Mm -hmm. and, um, and every answer I saw that I had seen to that question up to then looked feeble. Mm -hmm. And every answer that I've seen in the 60 years since then has looked feeble as well. Mm, yes. But this theory was the Bloom Big Bagel. It took me the whole summer. We used to, at, as soon as uh, our work let out at five o'clock mm -hmm. in the afternoon, we jump into a car and go to one of the kids' houses and continue this brainstorming until midnight. And the mm. result was the Bloom Big Bagel theory of the universe, the Bloom toroidal mm. model of the universe. And that model of the universe says, imagine a bagel with one of those frustratingly, infinitely tesimal small holes yep. at the center okay and imagine that that center is the it, the singularity the mm -hmm. moment just as everything begins okay and coming out of the hole of the bagel mm -hmm. rising rapidly up the top mm -hmm. is the normal universe okay coming out of the bagel at the bottom mm -hmm. is the antimatter universe mm -hmm. and those two universes first of all they go through inflation this right. was uh 38 years or something like that mm -hmm. 22 years before alan goth came up with the idea of inflation mm -hmm. why right. because the steepness of a curve represents speed yep and when you come out of the bagel's hole you're going up a very steep slope so you are moving very very fast right. and then the bagel implies that you slow down like a cannonball reaching the top mm -hmm. of its parabolic mm -hmm. arc mm -hmm. And then what happens? These two universes are dramatically different. One is an anti-universe, one is a normal universe, but they speak one language in common. And that language is gravity. And their gravity begins to tug them back toward each other again at an increasing speed, at accelerating speed, until they reach the outer rim of the bagel and they annihilate and become the hole at the center of the next big bagel. Huh. 
So in a big picture view, they're doing it's what the a Bloom thing. Big Bagel version. Yes. So, and you can find the animation of this. It's only five and a half minutes. It's really easy to understand um, on YouTube. Just look okay. up Bloom yeah. Big Bang or Bloom Big Bagel. Now, Greg, let's pull out of the picture for a second. Sure. And what do we see? We see a universe coming from a nothing, mm -hmm. going to its full amplitude, mm -hmm. then coming back to a nothing again, then going back to its full amplitude. Where else do we see that in nature? Right. Everywhere. Everywhere. That's yeah. how a photon operates, uh -huh. sure. for God's sakes. That's how an ocean wave operates. Um, so... That's so funny. That. When I went before I even did, I had a matter antimatter wave theory of the universe that was extremely right. similar. To what you just laid out. Well, Absolutely. this is what you. It, it's uh -huh. you know, it's so easy. It's ridiculous, and yeah. it answers the questions that cosmologists are struggling with right now, even as we speak. Plus, it makes a prediction. Once you get over the hump in the Big Bagel, you will start accelerating back down to the edge, oh. called by the gravity of the anti-universe below. Hmm. And, and in 1998, 38 years or something like that, after mm -hmm. the time I was sitting at that cafeteria table mm -hmm. at Roswell Park Memorial mm -hmm. Cancer Research Institute, brainstorming mm -hmm. this out, um, mm -hmm. they discovered, guess what? That past the seven billion year mark in the universe's mm -hmm. evolution, mm -hmm. everything starts accelerating. Mm -hmm. Figure out why it's a little dark and, energy action. Yes, exactly. So you know, how do you judge the um, uh, the effectiveness of a theory, the validity of a theory, but by extracting predictions and then seeing if those predictions come true? There have been mm -hmm. eight major predictions extracted from the theory of relativity, and every single one of them has come true. There's only one prediction that's been extracted from Big Bagel but it has come resoundingly true. And the Big Bagel is the only really simple explanation of what dark energy is. Dark energy is not a mystery once you see the Bloom Big Bagel. So at any rate, uh, so I was I was trying to explain about uh, entropy. Yeah, let me, because uh, you have you have a really cool story with Jacques Vonskep and the concept of science I want to talk about, uh, if you're willing to well, share Well, okay, so, like so the deal... We have to jump around a little bit, but that was that's close to my heart if we're talking Jacques right. Vonskep and, and the nature of science. So at some level, I do want to touch into that, if you're willing. Well, so let me tell you the story, and then we can see if there's an equivalent story in your life. Okay. Um, so here I am, a 10-year-old in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. I've been fascinated by airplanes. I used to draw five or six airplanes a day when I was three and a half years old. Mm -hmm. um, but nothing else. And my parents have no time for me or no interest mm -hmm. in me. It's hard to tell which, mm -hmm. and the other kids don't want to have anything to do with me again, except to humiliate me. And that was my situation in life from the time, basically, I was born. I was born as a child without parents. Why? Mm -hmm. Because when I was born, my father had just been drafted for World, World War II mm -hmm. and shipped off from Buffalo, New York to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And he had just started a small liquor store. So mm -hmm. my mom had to get to that liquor store early every day and keep mm -hmm. it open all day. So mm -hmm. I didn't have a mom either. And wow. I was locked in a, a narrow windowless corridor with a bare wood floor, which you register when you are still crawling. And I was mm -hmm. still crawling. It, you felt the cold with every 
yeah. hand thing you put down, hand mm -hmm. print. Um, and, um, and I was staring through a baby gate as a prisoner. And my mother was a really, really bright woman capable of doing just about anything on earth, mm. made an incredible blunder. Mm. She should have hired a babysitter. She had a baby. Mm -hmm. um, but instead, she hired a cleaning woman, mm. which means I was kept behind that gate so the cleaning woman could attend to what she was hired to take care of, the vacuum cleaner and the postage stamp sized rug. Right. So I was basically raised for three years without human beings. Mm -hmm. And um, that has proven to be this astonishing um, gift mm -hmm. to be out of sync with everybody else, mm -hmm. um, to be alone. It has been incredibly painful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went through seven therapists when I was younger. Mm -hmm. um, and but, but it has been a tremendous advantage. So mm -hmm. I'm 10 years old. I've, okay. I'm the child of loneliness, yeah. um, of solitude, and I'm sitting in my family's living room. I, I, my parents, the first apartment we lived in was so tiny that you could get a bigger craft cheese box. Um, um, but then they moved into a three-story house um, opposite Delaware Park which is one of Frederick Olmsted's gifts to humanity, Delaware oh. Park, and with a um, Frank Lloyd Wright house directly behind us. Oh. And how's that for a design sandwich? Oh, that's pretty nice. Yes. Yeah, but my parents kept the velvet drapes closed all the time. What insanity. But, you know, you're come to, come to, accustomed to something as a kid, so it never yeah. occurs to you that you could open the drapes. Oh. I'm sitting there in this dark living room, and it's sometime in the afternoon, and the house is... There's nobody in the house but me. And a book appears in my lap. What does that mean? Huh. You know the location of every book your parents own. Why? Huh. Because it has never moved from its spot in the bookshelf since <laughs> you've been born. Huh. Um, so when a book appears, that means a book that was never on the bookshelves is suddenly in my lap. Huh. And I have no idea where it came from. And I open it up and it says, the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it tells the story of Galileo as okay. if he were willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, which turns oh. out to be not at all historically correct. But oh. I need the mythic version. It's a nice story. It's a myth. Yes. A myth. I need the vision of absolute courage. Oh. And point number two, rule of science number two, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look at and for the things that everyone around you and you take for granted that thus are invisible to you and bring them into the realm of visibility and proceed from there. What's right under our nose if we follow the evolutionary timeline of the cosmos? Creation, superstar surprise or supersize surprise, um, massive shape shocks. Um, and not entropy. Mm. So scientists, but this brought me into science. Those were the dictum of courage mm. and the law of awe, wonder, surprise, and curiosity. Okay. And that's all I needed. That was mm. exactly what I needed at that point mm -hmm. in my life. And science became my religion at that moment.
And at that moment, I gained a group of people I could hang out with. When I showed up blocks away from a base, baseball diamond where the kids were picking up players for their teams and a lookout saw me coming, he ran back, they picked up their balls and their bats and their gloves, and they went to find another place to play baseball. That was that literally happened um, in Buffalo. And now I had a bunch of guys who could not do that to me for mm. a very simple reason. <laughs> Most of them were dead. It's hard to run away. <laughs> yes, exactly. Einstein was still alive at that point, but he was the only one. Oh, and Gamow was still alive. But I encountered them through their books, not through meeting them in person or anything right. of the sort. So that's how science became my life. And then I started reading two books a day. So how did science enter yours? Um, it's not nearly as dramatic. I mean, I, my, my life is a, is pretty normal at, at the level of, you know, average kid, little reading disability, you know, kind of a dork, but, you know, just hanging out. I don't ex really start transforming until undergraduate and graduate school. Actually. Really? Amazing. Yeah, I'm a late bloomer. Uh, well, so, to, to comfort you on the, the reading disability front, uh -huh. um, when I was in first grade, I was always the last one to hand in my desk work, mm. the last one. And the teacher gave a gold star to the first kid and the mm. silver star to the second kid. And I was always last. Mm -hmm. One day I was second from last and my mm. teacher gave me a gold star. Mm. But that's not all. She called my mother and she said, I think your son is mentally retarded. Mm. Um, I want you to take him to a psychologist for testing. And my mom did that, and she never told me what the tests were and or what the results were. But I stayed in school. I didn't really learn to read until I was 10. Um, I didn't learn to write until I was in second grade, a year behind everybody else in the classroom. So, um, and I have a friend, John Spoils, um, who is this brilliant, brilliant scientific thinker. Um, who published his first article in Nature at the age of, age of 19, he is a alphabetic. He hmm. did not understand what an alphabet was, and he couldn't grasp it for That's his right. first three or four years huh. of primary school. So when he writes, he writes from that stance of uh -huh. what a fucking miracle the <laughs> alphabet is. <laughs> totally. Here's a, let me share, share this and see if this resonates with your Yacht concept score. Okay. So I, I learned, you know, store normal behavioral science. You have to kind of measure shit, do experiments, things like that in undergrad, uh, you get mastery over that and want to then apply that to the psychotherapy room. So I'm going to become a clinical psychologist and talk to people about their problems, but I want to be anchored in science and I want to use the methods of science at some level to inform me. But actually you get into the real world of this kind of moment and the generalization, especially of the way in which psychological science is organized, is very, very difficult <laughs> to effectively apply in a particular way. So I actually became essentially obsessed with what would be a language of science, a way of being in relationship to science that would allow me to be in the world. And I heard you talk about a, a conversation with Jakob Ponskep that resonated quite uh, dramatically with that uh, experience of being. Well, I'll tell the Pongstep story in a second, but there is a very important distinction in science that is very seldom discussed. And it's between, um, it's between mathematical science and observational science. Um, 
And now, the works of Darwin do not contain a single equation. In fact, if you really look carefully at the work of Newton, it doesn't it doesn't contain equations either. Those equations were extracted later. Why? Because the equation was invented in 1570 and then didn't become mainstream until Newton was already uh, well established. Um, but yet we we regard any science that doesn't have equations as not science. That's crazy. There isn't a single equation in the works of Charles Darwin. Why? Because he was an uh, an observational scientist, a qualitative scientist, not a quantitative scientist. So I was sick in bed for 15 years with this devilish disease that kept me two weeks to speak for five years and two weeks to have another person in the room with me. And once I recovered the ability at least to speak, which was a really big deal, I mean, you wouldn't imagine what it was like to speak an entire sentence and then to be able to speak what seemed absolutely as impossible as Sisyphus's mountain, an entire paragraph. And then my wife got a call um, from VPRO TV in Holland, and they said, we want to base a uh, three hour TV special on your husband's first book. Um, <clears throat> we want to come over and talk to him and she said well he's only gotten up to the point where he can talk 10 minutes a day mm. now and they said fine we'll stay in a hotel near you for five days and we'll shoot a total of 50 minutes <laughs> and then it turned out that, that when you're energized by an audience you're a whole different being and so i was able to speak 15 minutes instead of 10 okay. minutes All at right. a time but the at, at some point there was what must have been a millionaire or a billionaire mm who wanted to once again ratify the ideas of Sigmund Freud as genuine science. At that point, they were looked upon as anything but genuine science, um, as some weird excrescence um, of science. Um, and uh, so he flew a bunch of really amazing scientific thinkers uh, and experimenters into New York City the first Thursday of each month. Now, who's going to turn down going from Bowling Green, where Jacques Panksepp was, yeah, that's to New York right. City, right, hey, hey. for an all-expense-paid trip for three days or so once a month? No Sign one's going up. to turn that down. <laughs> so somehow the person who was putting together the scientists for this had a bright idea. I don't know how he got it. And it mm -hmm. was that one by one, these scientists who've been flown in would make pilgrimages out to see me um, oh. in Park Slope, oh. in my bedroom. Right. Now, a weird thing had happened at about that time. I was asked to give a speech um, to the Silicon Alley Technology oh. Summit in 2000, oh. uh -huh. the beginning of the millennium. And okay. I said, but I can't be there. I can't travel oh. outside my bedroom. And they oh. said, fine, we'll come in and film you. And oh. they put together a brilliant 15-minute um, thing, uh, okay. presentation. Okay. And it was shown at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine on this mm -hmm. four-story four high screen or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was the last performer. And mm -hmm. and my eerie presence mm -hmm. on that two-dimensional screen um, riveted this audience. And mm -hmm. as soon as it was over, they started running up and down the aisles. A, a friend of mine ran to the phone to describe this to me. They were right. running up and down the aisles saying, He's the next Aristotle. He's the next Plato. How do we get our hands on him? So that must have been the sort of aura 
mm -hmm. um, that I had for these guys mm. coming out to see me. Yeah. And Yak Panksepp's work was very fashionable. I, I had formed at that point the International Paleopsychology Project. Look, well, I was sick in that bed. Mm -hmm. um, it took three years to get it through my head that mm -hmm. I just had to not try to sit up at a desk because that mm -hmm. was destroying me. It was more mm -hmm. energy than my body was able to handle. Okay. Um, that instead I should get two computers set up next to the bed with a little Chinese box that allowed me to control them both with one mm -hmm. monitor and a keyboard stretched out across across my prone body. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote three books during those 15 years. Jeez. And, and I founded two international scientific groups. Mm -hmm. And the and they were both so rich, Greg. Mm -hmm. You would have belonged in those yeah. groups. You would have had Amen. a ball in those groups. Yeah. So in the International Paleopsychology Project, the group that I was running at that point, which is all online, it's people from, I, in fact, my closest collaborator was from Israel, the head of the Condensed Matter Physics Department at the University of Tel Aviv. Um, and um, so Yach Panksepp's name was being brought up all the time in that group. And all of a sudden, coming out to my apartment is guess who? Yach Panksepp. Yes. <laughs> So um, he sat down on, you know, one of these $19 plastic lawn chairs yeah. um, at the foot of my bed. <laughs> and, and we talked for an hour and a half to two hours. And wow. you can see that any talk with me is likely to be a soliloquy punctuated with an occasional question. Um, <laughs> and so when, when we got to sort of the end, mm -hmm. Yach said, but you have to realize something. Your ideas are brilliant, but they're not science until you can narrow them down to something that's testable in the lab. Right. So I thought, I mean, being legitimate, because I know I'm on the outskirts of science. Mm -hmm. I have to be on the outskirts of science mm -hmm. if I'm going to do anything valuable for science mm -hmm. in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I get it. <laughs> so... Um, so I wonder about my scientific credibility. Remember, that's my identity since the age of 10 he's oh, talking about. Right. And I and for three months, the, the back burner in my brain was apparently marinating this, boiling it, turning it, stirring it. And finally, it came up with an answer. Yak, you are wrong. Once you take something and you narrow it down to that sliver, you can test in the lab. You've killed the phenomena that you are trying to explore. And for me, the ace phenomena, the, uh, what was that goblet the Lady of the Lake held up? Um, the, uh, oh, that was yeah. the bowl of the Crusaders, um, um, right, this from which Jesus that. had drunk, um, uh, the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail. So the okay, Holy sure. Grail of my life's mission, and my life has revealed itself to have a genuine set of interrelated, interrelated missions, yep. uh, which means a mission. Um, one of my life's missions is to take the ecstatic experience, the experience of being pulled out of ourselves and dancing with something higher than ourselves or being danced by something higher than ourselves, the experience I've had in performance, the experience that my performers, when I went into the pop culture, um, had um, night after night after night. I need to pull that into the realm of science. Because my my strong suspicion, John. So, Greg, imagine you go to a dance club. Mm -hmm. um, 
you, you're with your wife, um, but she's been nagging you for a long time to take her dancing. Um, there's a traditional disco DJ. There are mirrored balls. Um, there is there are strobe lights. You start dancing and you're you. Mm. But if you really get into the dance, at some point in that dance, you're not you anymore. Right. There's a you that comes out of you as if all you are is the wood for a bonfire. Mm. And that bonfire comes leaping out of you. And it dances you for three minutes, for 30 minutes. Uh, and then you go back to your table and a very strange thing happens. You forget you ever had that experience because you have no words for it. And it, it does not become a permanent part of your life. And you have just participated in something absolutely extraordinary. And one of the highest human potentials there is, and you, a scientist, have set it aside as if it doesn't exist because you don't have a vocabulary for it. So whose job is it to do what my my friend, um, oh God, um, what's his name, Fox, Robin Fox, the founder of the anthropology department at Rutgers ah, University. Okay, yeah, um, of course I know. So Robin Fox has a term left over probably from the days of um, Margaret Mead, participant observer science. You have to feel the phenomena entirely. It has to take you over. And you have to experience it in every blood cell, in every bone bit of your body before you can carry it back to science. There was a trading card set. Trading bubblegum cards were very big with the kids in my neighborhood who did occasionally let me go down to the corner store with them um, to buy something. And while they were all buying baseball cards, which I couldn't have been less interested in, there was a series of cards by a guy named Frank Buck. And his motto, up until then, people going on safaris had shot the animals and stuffed the heads and had them as trophies on their walls. Frank Buck did not do that. His catchphrase was, bring them back alive. My catchphrase in the realm of this ecstatic experience is bring them back alive bring them back into science and find a vocabulary that makes sense for them and what is the higher thing that i think we are making contact with and is dancing us it is the identity of the social group that we are making contact with and adolf hitler knew that better than anyone else because he staged his torchlight parades to astonish people, to absolutely astonish them. And what he was able to do with his main architect, who was his main art director, was awesome, the Torchlight Parades. And then he ended it, he he brought you, you were 10 deep or 20 deep on the sidewalk, trying to put your little kid up on your shoulders so that he or she could see. Um, and you felt exalted. You felt exhilarated. You felt part of a group identity. Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. One people, but a people whose roots went back a thousand years. Um, one state. Um, one state that had come into being later than any of the other major states in the Western world. One state that, according to George Hegel, 
was a manifestation of spirit, soul, mm. trying to break through mm. the car the cardboard mm -hmm. wall mm -hmm. and mm. become real mm. in the real world. That's what Ein Reich, Ein, Ein uh, well, Ein Volk, Ein Reich meant. And okay. one man who sums up everything you are, who is the tip of your flame, mm. all of your flames, Ein Führer, one leader. Mm. And he knew, in other words, that this sense of exaltation, this ecstatic state, belonged to actually as if the hundred trillion cells of your body mm -hmm. were able for a moment to almost leave your hand mm -hmm. and get a look at all of you and realize, oh, my God, we're a part of Greg. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's the Bloom hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I've never mm -hmm. written it up. Okay. Um, and I was doing an interview at one point and, and somebody pointed out to me that Einstein had this great incomprehensible mass of stuff that he was trying to put into the mainstream, his theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have this spiritual stuff, which I don't regard as spiritual because I've been an atheist mm -hmm. since I was 10 mm -hmm. um, or 12. Mm -hmm. um, I regard this as a profound, one of the most profound aspects of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And that's so long as psychology and what Jacques Pangsept, whose work was brilliant. Yes, I love Jacques. <laughs> um, what Jacques cannot get in touch with because he can't do a Margaret Mead. Mm -hmm. He can't first become a part of the phenomena so he can feel it in every cell of his body and mm -hmm. carry that feeling back into his lab mm -hmm. with him and start yep. figuring out now how in the world do I observe this in a meaningful way? But the first step is to gain a vocabulary for it outside of the vocabulary of religion. Mm -hmm. I frankly do use the vocabulary of religion because mm -hmm. for me, divinity is not something up there mm -hmm. in the sky. Mm -hmm. Divinity is a potential inside of us. Right. And I have seen it at work. Mm -hmm. You know, my field work was in pop culture. Mm -hmm. My field work was going into a field I knew nothing about, Matt, popular culture. Mm -hmm. My field work was founding the biggest public relations firm in the music industry Amazing. and looking objectively at all of its traditions, PR in the record mm -hmm. industry, and mm -hmm. tossing those that didn't work mm -hmm. and keeping those that did, and then inventing a whole bunch of new traditions that my science explained to me worked. Mm -hmm. um, and... Mm -hmm. And thus, I got a phone call in the first six weeks of my new company from my leading competitor. And he said, look, Howard, we know you. We like you. Um, we admire what you're trying to do, but it's impossible. And you'll be out of business in six months. Well, I did it, and he was out of business in three years. So I, I eclipsed all of my major competitors because combining science with the soul Mm -hmm. with whatever this is that I'm talking about, yep. um, the ecstasies of human experience, mm -hmm. um, works. Yeah. Because it does something. I mean, capitalism, you know, I have this book, The Genius of the Beast, a Radical Revision of Capitalism. Right. And it says that the prime mandate of capitalism, capitalism's first rule, is be messianic. Mm. Save, uplift, empower, and upgrade. One neighbor and you get a dollar. A hundred neighbors, you get a hundred dollars. A hundred million neighbors, you get a hundred million dollars. 
Um, and you can't do it without saving, lifting, upgrading, and empowering in some way. Mm. And so those were the rules of developing my artists. I dug mm. for the soul that danced them on yes. stage when they were out of control and when mm. they were channeling the souls of mm. 70,000 people in the audience. Mm. And mm. that channeling went up through them as if they were an empty pipe someplace around mm. their head, was utterly mm. transmogrified, went mm. back to the in the form of their next move. Mm. And they saw whether the eyes widened even further. Yeah. of their audience whether the pupils dilated even further of their audience mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. harry hamlin my friend the actor um mm -hmm. was voted as the sexiest man alive in 1986 by people <laughs> magazine um right. la law i remember harry <laughs> yes and so i i said harry how does this work in a theater the mm -hmm. audience is totally darkened there are stage lights that blind you you can't mm -hmm. see their eyes you can't mm -hmm. see their jaws dropping how do you know how they're responding to you? And Harry said something so brilliant, so obvious that it should have occurred to me decades ago. You mm. hear them breathe. Mm. Just as when you're making love to somebody, you mm. hear them breathe mm. and you follow the trail of their breaths, basically. Mm. Mm -hmm. So because erotic ecstasy, mm -hmm. making love, mm -hmm. um, sex, Mm -hmm. is the only other experience that has this kind of out-of-body mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. attached to it. And I learned about this by accident. Remember, my parents sent me off for this interview mm -hmm. with the headmaster of the park. The headmaster, we're back, yeah. Yeah, and despite the fact that I approached him in the most unlikely way possible, mm -hmm. he took me in mm -hmm. and he rearranged his science courses mm -hmm. um, for me. And I, I don't know where, well, I know where I was going. So I didn't turn out to be any more popular with the kids at that school than I'd ever been mm -hmm. before. In fact, a great many of them were kids that I'd known mm -hmm. um, from a neighborhood only 15 mm -hmm. or 20 minute walk away from my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and they all despised me. They were the kids who picked up their baseball gloves and found another place to play. Mm -hmm. um, so the high school had the usual um, the most popular kid in class gets elected class president. The second mm -hmm. most popular kid gets elected class vice president. The most popular girl gets elected class uh, secretary. And the most popular Jew gets elected class treasurer. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. There was no place for me in there because I wasn't popular. But they had these functional committees that actually had to get things done. And I had seen mm -hmm. in my first week at that high school, and in my first week they told us, look, in October... We are having a fair to raise money for the school. Mm -hmm. We're going to divide you into teams of seven people. Mm -hmm. And each of you will, each of your teams will come up with a booth that's designed to make money. So there mm -hmm. I am in a room with six strangers mm -hmm. and they're all popular and I'm not. And mm -hmm. they, we go around the table and each one makes, see, he pisses on his territory. He makes a mm -hmm. statement of his position. Fine. Mm -hmm. That's great. Once they finish doing that, this strange thing happens, mm. utter silence. Mm. Why? Because they have no idea of what to do next. Mm -hmm. And somehow, by some miracle, I always do have an idea <laughs> okay. of what to do next. So you end up in this room with people who hate you, mm. but they make you their leader because mm. you're the only one with an idea of where to lead them and how. Mm. And so they elected me the head of a functional committee 
Um, the programming committee. Now, the school opened with, up with an assembly, 45 minutes every day of assembly. And I got with my committee to program two of those assemblies a week. And I emceed five of those assemblies a week. Now, imagine that. I mean, wow. you've never been in front of an audience. You know these people wow. hate you. And you're going to have to go in front of them. You have stage fright for months. And then it became as natural as breathing to go up on that stage in front of 350 people. So then the juniors came to me. By the way, they elected me for this position two years in a row, which just doesn't happen. And um, so they trusted me with their first 45 minutes a day, which is remarkable given the fact, given how they felt about me. So at any rate, um, so one day the juniors came to me. And they said, we're having a dance. Could you advertise it for us? And Greg, they had no idea of the cutting deep irony of what they had just said. Mm -hmm. If there was a dance anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away <laughs> as possible. Um, there was no way I would be welcome at this dance. And yet they were asking me to advertise it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I put a piece of music, God knows what it was, on a turntable behind the stage. Mm -hmm. And I got up on stage. And I can't dance. My parents, every two years, would try to make me normal. Mm -hmm. And one year, their project was sending me to dance school for two semesters. Mm -hmm. And by the end of two semesters, I still could not do the, 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 the box step or the foxtrot. Mm -hmm. And the only people who would dance with me were the instructors. And they regretted having offered because I stepped on their toes so many times. Mm -hmm. um, so I, a person who can't dance, am now in the middle of this stage with music playing in the background. And I start to move. And apparently it's not like moves you have ever seen from a human before. <laughs> okay. uh, it, it, is, it is like a Looney Tune drawn by Chuck Jones on a night when he had just dropped LSD. Oh, it was wow. bizarre. It was crazy. Okay. That's different. And, yeah. And so I saw in particular the face of the girl who hated me most. And I saw her face melt. And I saw her eyes widen. And I saw her pupils dilate. Huh. And then I saw that the faces of all the, those 350 kids who hated me were doing exactly the same thing. Wow. And then I had an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. I was on the ceiling watching this all take place. And I saw them congeal in this great big blob of spirit like a giant amoeba. Mm -hmm. And I saw it reach a pseudopod, a tunnel out mm -hmm. to me. And I saw the energy of the 350 people going up through the empty pipe of my body mm. and reaching someplace around here mm. and then being utterly transmogrified and coming out of me as my next step. And then seeing the pupils widen even further and their mouths open even further. And when I, so that was my first out of body experience. And channeling the souls of 350 people right. who hated me and when it was over they did something they did with such perfection you would have thought they had been rehearsing it for years uh -huh. but they had never done it before and they would never do it again not even for football heroes <laughs> um, they came down to the foot of the stage they picked me up off the proscenium they put me on their shoulders yeah. they carried me out of the auditorium and all the way up the path to the building where we had our classes Ah, it was that's so, lovely howard that's a, so, a nice uh but it took me 30 or 40 years to realize bloom you're after this experience you've actually had it you idiot right. 
There it's it is. That's there right. in the closet you of your mind. You yes. transferred into the but collective that, that afforded but, the harmony and the resonance and relation. Right. So that was my one of my major tools for dealing with people like Michael Jackson and hmm. Prince and Bob Marley and John Mellencamp in particular. Because for John Mellencamp, this was a painful experience. Hmm. He was in a euphoria, um, an uncontrollable euphoria, while he was dancing on stage in front of the audience. And he was one of the best performers. He was up there with Prince. He was up there with Michael Jackson. He was amazing. But when you saw him come off stage and, and, and walk within the shadow of the curtain, and then down the corridor that led to his dressing room, he looked like a hollowed out skeleton. Wow. His eyes were no longer eyes. They were deep pits of shadow. And there was no personality in oh. his face because he had just been drained of the souls of the 17,000. And he was drained of what Peter Townsend, Peter Townsend, the founder of the Who. Um, Peter Townsend and a bunch of his friends were concerned about their friend, Eric Clapton, who was clearly goddamn brilliant. And Eric Clapton was a heroin addict, and they were all trying to get him off of heroin. So George Harrison tried, and he failed. And he wrote a song about it. It's just the songs of the chocolates and assorted chocolate box. That's where that song came from, because heroin addicts have a craving for chocolate. And Peter Townsend tried, and he was a student of the mayor Baba at the time. Mm -hmm. So he said, look, I know why you are doing heroin. Mm. You get on a stage in front of 70,000 people, you channel those the combined souls of those 70,000 people, they go up to the Godhead in you, mm -hmm. and they are transformed. And then they flow back down to your audience again. Mm -hmm. So you've been filled with 70,000 souls mm. operating at maximum capacity, the dimmer has been turned on bright yeah. for all of them. And you walk into the shadow of the curtain and suddenly you are empty and alone. And you try to fill that emptiness with heroin. And it was a brilliant description of the performance experience. And it brilliantly described exactly what I had been through. And it brilliantly described what John was through. So we would guide him to the dressing room. He would always have a little private room that could be locked. Mm -hmm. as part of the dressing suite mm -hmm. we would put him in there with either his wife or me mm -hmm. and it would take an hour for his normal personality mm -hmm. to return okay. wow. that's how powerful this kind of ecstatic experience is and that's why ever since i put a name to what i was doing the grand unified theory of the universe including everything uh including everything and the human soul um, no, the grand unified theory of everything, including the human soul. That's it. Right. The human soul was in there as a place marker yeah. for this aspect of the human experience. Lovely. Okay. That's, that's a, actually, that's a really beautiful, uh, why don't we bring ourselves to a close here in relationship to time. Uh, the image of you being held off the stage, the image of you holding uh, that transformative experience, you know, the recognition of what that is. What is that group resonance that we that uh, that some people are able to achieve in relationship to these collective moments of 
you know, synergy and consciousness and the meaning of that. And how do we, you know, we observe that, we participate in that. That is, um, is that kind of like the way atoms get together and all of a sudden find themselves in right relation? Is there, is there stacking, a grouping, a blooming universe of collection of social intelligence of process? Well, according to the bloom gut brain unified theory, Mm -hmm. there are er patterns in the universe. Mm -hmm. There are primal patterns. Like, for example, at the very first flick of the Big Bang, attraction and repulsion play a major Mm -hmm. role. And um, so you are right that there are rules of emergent property that come from sociality. And sociality begins when the first three quarks get together in -hmm. protons and neutrons. That's social relationship producing a larger whole, which is as real as real can be. And so... Yes, I strongly suspect that that pattern of congregation mm-hmm. and the generation of something that comes out of the next invisible stair step up mm-hmm. um, on the ladder, the stairs, mm-hmm. the stairway of complexity, mm-hmm. the stairway yep. to heaven. Yep. Um, I suspect that is what we are experiencing in some way. And Amen. we need to be science. We're not science yet. Because science is about understanding everything. And as Barbara Ehrenreich, um, the Uh National Magazine Award winner, wrote Uh in the introduction to my book, The God Problem, for 350 years to understand how a hummingbird flies. The first thing we've done is caught a hummingbird and killed it. Uh In other words, we've killed everything that would answer the question of how a hummingbird flies. And so we look, we mulch it up, we put it through centrifuges, we look at individual cells. We miss the point that we miss the point. And it's time for science. She said, this book may be the the beginning of the next 250 years of science because it looks at the holes, at these mysterious larger entities that emerge instead of just looking at the parts. It's the blooming universe. You know, and yeah, it's grabbing right. the whole of the blue. Oh, oh, and let me tell you a tiny. Oh, let me tell you a tiny little story to to finish All this right. up with okay. the blooming universe. So there I am. I'm in my twenties, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking these problems through. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to describe what I'm thinking about to my wife, mm-hmm. and I constantly continue. I always tell her, "Look, the universe exfoliates, which means mm-hmm. it puts out leaves. It puts mm-hmm. out blossoms." And finally, and my wife keeps trying to tell me, you can't use that word exfoliate. It's, it's used like in beauty salons, yes, to take off layers of dead skin. <laughs> and then she comes up with a synonym for exfoliate. Where we might find that. The universe blooms. Yes. So there you have it. There we have it. That's a wonderful crescendo moment uh, to place you on our shoulders here. We appreciate the uh, the romp through what is an unbelievable set of connections and stories. Um, and uh, I know my audience will appreciate just the number of little dots that your life has connected to create uh, a tapestry that's all part of a part of a whole. And I know that your soul appreciates that and so does mine. So that's a right. Thing. So let's hope that we are both on the verge of taking that next invisible stair step up. Or at least guiding humanity to take it. Perfect. That's lovely. Lovely way to end. Thanks so much.